today I interviewed Sabrina Zung with Exto Cognac. And, you know, going into this interview, I didn't really know a whole lot about Cognac. She really schooled me and she is so classy because she's, you know, from France and she worked over at L'Oreal for, for 15 years and she walked me through this sort of a lesson on this idea of eau de vives, which is the, uh, the sort of the essence, the second, the twice distilled uh, water that comes from uh, the grapes from Cognac. And the reason why I enjoyed this episode so much is because Sabrina comes from a very entrepreneurial background. So I hope you uh, join me today to listen to uh, this wonderful Vietnamese person who was born in France and she took this journey to make cognac and it's a very a special type of high-end cognac and it's called Exto. So please join me. Welcome to the Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over. My name is Sabrina Duong. I am uh, the CEO and founder of Exto Cognac, a cognac that I have created with Julie Dupuis. She's one of the best sommelier of the world. And we have embarked this journey since 2019 with this idea of creating a cognac that would challenge tradition. Thank you for coming on today. Uh, you and I have known each other through different channels, uh, but one in particular is through the L'Oreal channel. My uncle Zing has worked over there and had mentioned about you and then Hal from Vietcetera had talked about and actually introduced us uh, over lunch one day. And so thank you for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Well, first, thank you for interviewing me. It's really nice and kind of you. Yes. And I understand this is your first podcast, so I'm so excited to get the details of your life uh, for the first time here. And this is where we get to highlight the work and the life that you have lived. Willing to take the challenge. <laughs> okay. So I know that you spent many years over at L'Oreal. Can you tell me about how you got to Vietnam and what were you doing at L'Oreal before you got and started Exto? Okay. So... First, I just want to say I'm French, hence the slightly French accent. Um, and so obviously in, in French, you know, L'Oréal is a French company. And I have been work after basically graduating from business school. I applied to work at L'Oréal and I worked there for 15 years. I had very various positions, but um, basically halfway through my career, they sent me to Vietnam uh, with this idea of becoming one of the business unit manager, GM for one of their division. And so I started um, L'Oréal Vietnam when I was 29 years old. And by 30 years old, I was GM of the active cosmetic division. At the same time, in the biggest uh, business unit division was your uncle Anzing, uh, who was actually a great, great, great uh, mentor and someone I was looking up to during this time in Vietnam when I arrived. And being a G GM at 30 years old, it's, it's a big responsibility. And I had over 100 employees. And so Anzing was always there to help me whenever I had questions about understanding the market, about the business. He was always willing to help. And um, those four years where I was living and working in Vietnam were very formative about um, running a business. Because prior to this, I was doing marketing. I was doing operational marketing as well as development marketing, but I always loved running and managing a business. So for me, it was always like a natural step. Um, 
but it's different to do it in such a big scope uh, in a foreign country um, because I was born and raised in France my whole life. I didn't speak Vietnamese. I speak Cambodian at home, but my parents would speak Vietnamese between them. It was their secret language. Hmm. And so when I was sent to Vietnam by L'Oréal, I learned to speak Vietnamese there because I was in charge of um, basically active cosmetic division is the pharmaceutical division. Um, so our retailers are not like supermarkets, but they are pharmacists. Uh, they are doctors, they are dermatologists. So I had to learn how to talk to them because most of them um, didn't speak English. And obviously my team on the ground didn't speak English. So I had to speak and learn Vietnamese. So let's say that my Vietnamese is as good as a baby talking, someone who's like five years old, who know how to get by, have things done. And I remember back when I was doing business meeting, I would do them very early before the stores open. And then every other month, it would be bad because I was so not awake or I was so tired that I would say something in Vietnamese and I look at my team and their eyes are like this. And I say, you didn't understand, right? It's like, yeah, we didn't get your eyes. <laughs> so if I had meetings in the afternoon, meetings would go well, very early in the morning, very late at night, my son would be all over the place. But by then they knew my message so much because it was always the same anchoring message about what the brand stands for and what was the positioning on the market that they knew the speech by heart. So that was good. You know what, what really blows my mind and I want to challenge the listeners when they hear this is to kind of open up their mind. Now, why I say this is imagine there is a 30 year old French woman who is in Vietnam, doesn't speak Vietnamese, but is Vietnamese origin, but comes from a, French Western mind coming back to a corporate setting with business principles who is re-chanting a message over and over and over again for her team. And I think I am along with uh, many people in the United States thinking that, you know, and I just even said this about this company, VinFast, uh, on, on, a, on a separate thing, that the corporate culture in Vietnam is not fully formed yet. But this is over a decade ago that you were there, right? Yes, 2019. So, uh, so sorry, 2009. 2009. What was the message that you were getting back? Because I, I want to hear this, and I think it relates later to Exto, right? It, your cognac company. But I want to hear what that message was that you were repeating over and over again. So there was two things. There was um, the brand itself, uh, and it was the beginning of what we call like the... Um, the dermatological words about how you can have like clean and, and safe beauty um, because those brands are endorsed by doctors and pharmacists. So it's all about people with sensitive skin. It's about understanding that the lifestyle that you're having, especially in Vietnam, where there was so much pollution, uh, how it was affecting your skin and how, you know, like we stand for as a brand uh, with a brand that has a mission of doing like safe and clean beauty kind of before. So it was not so much with like, just the ingredients of saying no nasties, but being the brand that is safe, used by people who have eczema, who have cancer. And so it's like giving that message that in Vietnam, you have also to take care of your skin just because, you know, you don't have this education. It's not just about the price, but it's about the quality. It's about people who have tested and studied the product on people who have sensitive skin, on people who have skin disease, on people who have health issues. Because those people who have a very, very sensitive skin, they are the one um, 
who will react straight away to a product if it's not good? And so it was creating this market which didn't exist, but which had tremendous potential. And just to go back on this, when I first arrived, our market was the smallest in terms of market share. I was the, there is four division. There was the luxury division, the uh, consumer product division, the hair care division, and then my division, which is called cosmetic active division. It was the smallest one. I call us the smallest and the mighty pepper, you know, like you bite into them and you get ugh, so much. And it was this because we were really tiny. We were a small team. We were only 100 people when the, the big consumer product division like had 500 people, you know. So we were really small. We were growing at fast pace, but still only a few million dollars of turnover. Now, fast forward um, over 10 years later is the biggest division in Vietnam. Wow is the biggest market because health is the at the forefront of everything. And so people in Vietnam realized that, and I always knew this, that we had the biggest mission, that it was about educating customer about their health, about protecting against the sun, about having the right product for you that you know would not trigger more health issues in the long term, like allergies and things like this. And when you are so sure about the mission, when you really believe into it, into your core, it's very easy then to pass it down on. So that was me, um, my vision that I had for the division in Vietnam. The second part that I had that was more personal, it was about like um, making the team very strong. And a lot of them were women actually, 80% of the team were women. Um, and a lot of them were actually um, working for the first time or young mom and they were taking away time from being at home taking care of their kids to have like a career and I wanted to show them that it was possible to have both that you could have a career and then still have a family and understand that it's also full work that comes independence and that comes balance you know in your life from the fulfillment you had I would organize the very first like team building where the whole team would fly away and I remember the first hesitation from them saying like, oh, I cannot be gone away from my family. And so the very first team meeting would go and do in Vung Tao, for example, you know, very close by so that they didn't feel that they were gone for overnight for business trip. Now, again, you have to remember 2009, uh, 2010, like some of them were 20 years old. They don't even know what's the word of working, you know, and they're being a, selling in a boutique or in pharmacy and they're having now their own salary. They're, they're contributing to their family, either being at home or their own family, right? But also from this, having a lot of pride and um, because they were doing things that they were recognized for their work. So that part of women empowerment was very strong to me. And this is what I brought forward to my cognac. Now, that needed to be said. Those stor That story and that, brief window into l'oreal and your experience there is very important because now i would now i'm really interested and hope the audience is interested in where well, where do you go from a decade of experience in a big corporate setting like that and now what made you want to leave a very comfortable i i'd imagine a comfortable life i mean i'm sure you worked a lot but comfortable in terms of not the stress that comes with being a small business owner. And so what inspired you to take the next step? Why into Cognac? Oh, that's a very big question. And um, so I always knew that I would be an entrepreneur. I always liked to take risks and I've always valued and um, 
recognize the strong the strong work of an entrepreneur. My mom was an entrepreneur. And I remember when I first interviewed L'Oréal, I was like 24 years old. And one of the HR asked me, where do I see myself in 10 years from now? And I said, I would have quit L'Oréal and I would have created my own business. Wow. They hired me anyway. <laughs> but I always had in mind that I will have at one point or another my own business. And what was beautiful about working for L'Oréal for 15 years is that I got to learn so many skills. I've got to learn so many different type of um, environment, situation, challenges, brand positioning, where I I felt that I have enough confidence and expertise to be able to run my own. Now, as to the reason how I got into Cognac, it's something completely different. Um, I have a very strong passion for high-end gastronomy. When I was, uh, call me French, but I always enjoyed my Mission Star experience. So when I was living back in France, I would have Mission Star Chef all the time. I would do one, two, three, and I would really enjoy the journey. I enjoyed the experience. I enjoy in France, you say you spawn the small plates within the big plates. And then you have all the, the silverwares and you have the glasswares and how there's a ceremonial. I love this because it's about excellence, because it's about experiencing is about sharing and so and to that level it's always something you remember so when i was living in vietnam i missed that so much that at one point i felt if i can't have chef every month like i used to i'm gonna fly them over so now i am working at l'oreal and i'm having this side passion where i'm flying mission star chef from france all the way to vietnam every quarter and I would just make deals with like five-star hotels in Vietnam. Um, uh, and I say, hey, I bring you this chef. The only thing is I want one night for my friend and I. We're going to dress up and the chef's going to do a menu for us. And that was the deal. I mean, I was making enough money in Vietnam, right? You're, I'm having a good job. Standard of living is very cheap. And I just wanted my mission star chef. So I brought them over. But then getting into this made me fall even more in love with the high-end gastronomy. I discover food pairing to a highest level because now I'm working with the chef on the menu he's going to cook at the five-star hotels. And I'm working with a sommelier on something that can match and pair with. And then I fell into the world of sommelier together. Um, and that's how I... Go on. Uh, I want to ask a question. Uh, yes. Where do you think you got your taste from? I think uh, for, for sure for my mom. She's been cooking all the time. Um, she always cooked at home a lot of food. And there's always so many herbs also. And that's one of the beauty of like Asian food. There's a lot of herbs that has a lot of aromatic profile. So I think from very young, you are kind of working on your taste, right? And then you're being exposed more and more to food, more and more to like quality. And then you grow up back, like, building on that, I would say. So actually what happened is by getting closer with those mission star chefs, right? Like you get into this world of even more excellence and, and about like creating, challenging what is done all the time. So when I was back after Vietnam, back in France, it happened that, that my best friend's husband has been in the cognac industry for generations. His family has been making cognac for a long, long time. And they have always asked me, Sabrina, would you want to help us developing our cognac? And I said, I'm sorry, I'm not going to stop working at L'Oréal to develop your brand, but I'll stop L'Oréal to create my brand. 
would you make my cognac? And then they said, yes, why not? And this is how it started. Um, so now I'm like, okay, I love drinking cognac. I would enjoy it with them all the time, you know. But to say that I can make a cognac, of course not. So when I start dreaming about the cognac I wanted to do, it's like, first, how what I'm going to do, how I'm going to change the way cognac is made, because I want something that is for this generation. I want to be intentional to include women um, drinking cognac because I felt that it's a very masculine drink and it should not be. So I thought, well, I'm going to hire someone who is who knows about cognac, but is not from cognac, a bit like me, an outsider, but just to like the best level you can find. And so being in that world, I was like, oh, what about a sommelier? And then, then I start thinking, yeah, but I cannot take any sommelier because why a sommelier could know how to make the best cognac in the world, if not the best sommelier of the world. And so now I start dreaming I'm, and I'm thinking I should hire the best sommelier of the world to make this cognac. And I'm like, no, actually I should make the best, I should hire the best female sommelier of the world to make this cognac. And she should be French because like me, she'll be able to go and talk to producers and we're going to be able to find the smallest, most beautiful, the rarest eau de vie to make a cognac. And she should be young because she, I want her to have a younger and fresh point of view about what cognac could stand for and oh. challenging the tradition. What, what is eau de vie? Oh, so eau de vie is like what they call water of life. It's basically the blend that goes into a cognac. And if you want, I'll explain that later. Okay. In the process of how cognac is made. And so now I'm thinking, okay, the best female swimmer of the world, a French woman, she has to be young. And now I'm adding if she... And she needs to be bilingual. So it's not a given in French to have people who are bilingual um, because it's going to be an international brand. So she needs to be able to go with me on tours and present a brand. And then by then, like everybody's thinking like, oh my God, how are you going to find this person? It's a unicorn. And I've been searching online and I, list, I looked at the worldwide Sommelier competition and there she was, third place on the podium, the only female. She got bronze medal. And um, she's French. Her name is Julie Dupree, and she was 34 years old. So there I am. I'm like, that's it. That's her. She's going to be the one making my cognac. And now I'm like, how do I reach out to her? How do I contact her? And I found LinkedIn. I'm going to write her a message on LinkedIn to tell her about this idea I have, this dream I have about cognac. So now bear in mind, we're 2017. Um, I'm just having this idea of making a cognac. I'm still working for L'Oréal. So I'm like doing this all undercover. <laughs> and I'm thinking my whole profile is L'Oréal. Maybe she's going to think it's a, a hoax. You know, she's not going to reply. But guess what? After like a couple of days, she replied to me and she said, yes, I would love to go on a call with you and learn more about your project. So go on the call. At that time, there was no Zoom, nothing. Remember back before the pandemic. Um, and after one hour, she was like, okay, I'm in. And that's how it started. What did you have to say to her to kind of convince her? Or is it this typical pitch? And she was like, okay, yeah, it makes sense. Or was there sort of like this barrier? She's saying like, maybe this is not really a viable opportunity because what's the real market? You know, because that's my question, right? Like if somebody came to me, 
I, you know, I think in her position, she would probably be thinking, well, have you done your research? Have you, you know, how do you explain to another woman that this is my vision and it, it will work? So for her, the idea, like the positioning for her was spot on. She really understood it. Um, but for her, it was more about the quality, whether I will be able to give her access to the best quality of cognac to make a cognac because now her name will be on the bottle, right? Now it's her credibility of creating the best cognac in the world as the best female sommelier of the world. So she liked the idea of creating something. She understood that it's a challenge um, in the way the current cognac exists, you know, like the way the flavor profile is done. And so she felt that something could be done and she got that. However, she was like, how we make sure that we can, as a small producer, how we make sure that we can have access to the best Eau de vie, the water of life that makes a cognac. Now, how long have you guys been doing the cognac now? So um, we started 2017. It took two years for her to create the blend. So basically, from the moment she decided she would work with me. So just backtrack. When she agreed, I said, how about you come to France? Because she was based in Ireland. How about you come to France and then you can try the cognac of my friend. You see what is their capabilities in terms of making a beautiful cognac. And I bought so many competitors so that she would be able to taste all across. And after this tasting, she's like, okay, your friends can make beautiful cognac. But this I knew because I contacted my other sommelier from Mission Star Chef restaurant back in France and I had them try it. And they all confirmed that my friends was making beautiful cognac and they had this ability to do it. It's... It's something very specific. You need to have not only the quality, but you need to be able to know how to blend and to create something different. And you need to have your own, I would say, touch. It's like when you make a dish, you know, like that je ne sais quoi that you're adding, that is part of your personalities, your taste. It's like the way you assemble. So she validated their competence. But now it was about creating the blend that she would like with the eau de vie that she thinks were worthy. And that took two years. She almost at one point said, like, Sabrina, let's just forget it. Because at that time, I had put her a bracket in terms of price. I wanted a cognac to be around 70 to 100, 150 euros retail price. And nothing was fitting in terms of um, what we had. And I, at that time, I said to my friend, say, listen, now it's open bar. I want Julie just to do whatever she wants. I want to have something in the market. It's been so long and I don't want her to pull away because we're going to do something so unique. And so now like we're contacting all again, the small producer asking for their rarest, their most beautiful de vie. And then one day she said, okay, that's it. I said, what I mean? No more change, no more iteration. And she said, no, that's it. And two years later, we created Exo Cognac Elixir. Now I have understand that like whiskey scotch bourbon all, these are all very male even cognac and these are all very male driven uh spirits it feels very masculine and, and you know when i think about champagne i think more of a female drink but can you really explain to me why do you think that cognac is more i, I and i'm sure you know it is but can you explain to me why cognac feels and tastes more male and then how do you introduce a more female feeling brand facing the people uh how do you infuse 
a feminine approach to both the flavor and the branding if it's so yes. male dominated like i think it's a two two part question first part is why is it male why does it feel more male why does the branding feel male why does the taste feel male and then if that's the case how is it that you transition the male into a more feminine facing brand yes so first i would say is the level of alcohol Mm. compared to other drinks but you have to remember that cognac is 40 degree abv right so it is a strong drink it's a distilled drink now the flavor profile of a cognac in general is what now we're going to say something more melanated so it means that it's it's more on the woody notes it's more on the oaky notes it's more on the tobacco notes it has that leathery taste and this is something that usually women will feel very strong and they will be like oof that's too strong for me to enjoy. That's those notes are like too harsh or those notes are very much on the darker side. And now you have to remember, usually women like something that is more on the sweeter side. And now you're used to drink something that has so much like uh, alcohol content. So the two together makes it a very masculine drink. On top of that, in the way cognac is usually enjoy is with a cigar. So if you're pairing smoking cigars and drinking a strong drink that will enhance the cigar flavor, cognac is a perfect match, but it's made to enhance each other in those very specific notes. When I created this cognac, I challenged really in saying that I wanted something with an appetite for younger generation that would be more intentional to bring a new type of customer. So it means the millennials, but it means also the woman. It means a new generation of drinker. To be honest, people who are 30 don't drink cognac anymore. It's our parents, it's our grandparents. So it's like how you're gonna bring this our generation, this younger generation to drink cognac? Well, it's by taste because it's in the choice of the blend. When Julie created this cognac, she said that she wanted to have a cognac that would display energy, elegance, and there would be a lot of passion when you drink it. So it means that when you're drinking Exto Cognac, it's very aromatic, it's very flavorful, it's very fruityful, in a way that the first notes that you will have are like stone fruits. There are some violets, some caramel, some vanilla, vanilla notes. The alcohol content is also very much integrated. You know, when you have that smurfs, um, sorry, when you have that smurf, ah, sorry. You know when you have that first sniff of alcohol? Yes. And then you go like, oh, oof, right? You don't want that. And we've been working to really make sure that it is integrated so that it's something that is very uh, pleasant to smell and after that, pleasant to drink. So the more you open up, the more flavors are co coming out, the smoother it is, the rounder it is. And that's what we've been looking to do. And to be fair, even men now in that new generation of drinker, they're looking for something smoother. They're looking for something that has elegance, that has a lot of flavor. People are not so much into like those lettery notes, those like woody notes, those mushroomy notes. It's another type of drinker. And I feel our generations are more open to something that is slightly different. And that's why Elixir has been very successful with men drinking Japanese whiskey, uh, and bourbon also, but also for females who were not drinking. And they say, if this is cognac, I would drink this. Now, when I think about market share for anything, whether it's a car or a cognac, I think about like, how do I get both men and women, 
right? So the, the decision to make something more feminine is a sort of like driving lines of market share. You're not going to get both, right? But then again, if you think about like traditional cognac, it's more male dominated. So they're probably owning most of that male market of drinkers. So is that some consideration that you had to go through when you were deciding if we market this as a female brand that we're going to lose market share? Uh, because I, I, I can't help but think that if I was a young man growing up and I was, you know, sort of a macho kid and somebody said, oh, you're drinking Exto, that's like, and they make fun of me for drinking Exto, but, but I can really understand and enjoy the formation of Exto. The way you've explained it is I want to drink it because it sounds really yummy to me, but you know, the marketing is going to prevent me from drinking it as a man who's growing up in Vietnam or maybe Europe has this machismo, you know, maybe in Spaniards or Portuguese. I, I, I don't know if that's sort of like a cultural consideration. I mean, um, I guess there would always be men who might not want to drink a female drink. However, now you see, like, for example, in the winery, there's a lot of like female wineries both in wine and in champagne area, it's true that it's not seen as much in like the brown alcohol industry. However, if you look at my bottle, like it doesn't look feminine, right. but it has a feminine side to it, right? It, you look at it, there's no pink, there is no purples, right? you know, like it's, it's just everything that has been done was about making sure that women are included. As opposed to saying, I never say it's a feminine drink. I always say that it's a drink made by two women with a feminine point of view. Because at the end of the day, it's still done the way cognac is done. It's still a champagne, like it's still made with 40 degrees cognac inside. And it's it's just in the way it tastes. It has something that has more um, integrated notes that notes that are more like pleasurable to drinks that are more on the smoother notes, the the more delicate notes. And that's why it's interesting. Now, if you see the new generation of drinkers, this is appealing to them. They like when it's smooth. They like when there is something going on as opposed to just harshness for the sake of harshness. I agree. Uh, so I, I think you agree? I'm part of, I agree because I'm a part of the new wave of drinkers. I, I like what you just described. I don't, you know, the harshness sometimes gets... It gets hard for me because I, I I do drink my Lagavulins and Lafroig. I, I like those and they're harsh, but I do need a break from those sometimes, and I do need the lighter notes, aromatic notes that uh, that exist out there. Yes, I really I really believe this, and that's why actually when we we did this cognac, we entered it in competition, and we got fifteen awards over the last two years. Every single competition we won got awards, so it was a good way, you know, to see whether what we've done also could stand out. To be full disclosure, I remember one time we got a bronze medal and I was like what how come we got a bronze medal for me it was so obvious that we would get a medal for sure each time that when we got bronze I got very upset and I called Julie I said Julie we got bronze medal and I don't even want to put it on the website and she says Sabrina you have to understand that some of the jury who will taste the cognac are very old school cognac and they will recognize it's a beautiful cognac but it's not traditional cognac so you won't be able to get double gold for that as simple as this, I'm like, okay, I'll take that. Interesting. Wow. Now, when you go out to buyers and you go out to the market to push it in distribution, do you come up with 
a lot of sort of uh, pushback uh, from is it more male dominated buyers industry or is it open and people who are on the buying distribution side are more open to uh, a new product that has come in? So my business model is very different than a very typical alcohol brand. Um, I have distributors in different countries in the world. I am sold in uh, Singapore, in Ireland, in Iceland, in northern countries. But in the U.S., I'm not sold in the U.S. Uh, because my business model here is about educating people how to drink cognac. And I do like workshops where I teach people how to drink cognac. You won't find my cognac in any retailer. Um, because it's a very high-end cognac. I have very limited quantities. Uh, my run, for example, the Elixir, it's a 350-euro cognac, and there is only 2,000 bottles, like 2,000 bottles. It's a very small run. Now, I have another cognac, which is called Or Imperial, which means Imperial Gold. This one has only 888 bottles, and it costs $2,000. So because of this, it's like you won't find me everywhere. Um, I am sold in Mission Star. I'm distributed in Mission Star restaurant in high-end palace, five-star hotels, where people know and appreciate how to drink uh, a beautiful drink. I'm speechless. I had no idea that that was the price point. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't change the tra trajectory of my questions, but I, I'm uh, very impressed by uh, the price points because now I understand like this is another, it's sort of another level that we're, we're dealing with. Now, what, this is a very basic question, but I understand that things like champagne and cognac are really a brand of the region it comes from. Uh, out of France, correct? Correct. Now, why is it that cognac is a certain taste coming from grapes, I assume? Yes. And why does it have to be made into that type of uh, alcohol? Because I can imagine like grapes coming out of cognac can be made into a wine or a red wine or a white wine or something like that. But why does it have to taste like cognacs? Like you, you, you do, you know what I'm saying? Like what makes a cognac so specific? What makes it specific? And why can't they use the grapes out of cognac to make a, another type of wine? Why does it have to be a cognac? So, so cognac can be, only be made in cognac France, kind of like champagne, right? So if you're outside by one kilometer away, you won't be able to be called cognac. And there's a reason. So first, it's made of white grapes. There's a whole process to be able to do a cognac. Basically, it's like a, a wine that has been distilled twice. So they distill one time, they take the best out of it, they distill a second time. And out of this come transparent water. And this is what is the eau de vie, that water of life I was mentioning. Then this water of life, this eau de vie is an age in a very French oak, which is a um, it's an oak barrel that is called um, sorry um, now I'm, I'm forgetting my French um, sorry uh, I'm forgetting the French words for like barrel une barrique une barrique du, du limousin so it's um, basically you have let me start again so cognac is actually being aged in like French oak barrel and it has to be aged for at least two years to be able to be used. After two years, it can age longer, two years, three years, four years, as you name it. As long as it stays in the barrel, it's aging and it's taking the taste and the color 
of the wood. As soon as you remove it from the wood barrel and you put it in what they call a damjan, which is like a glass jar, it stops aging. So a cognac is always a blend of different type of eau de vie that comes from different barrels to create one cognac. So now why these typical grapes? Uh, Actually, those grapes are very bitter. It's not a grape that you could enjoy like this. And it needs to be like this to be able to create a cognac. That's... It's a very specific grapes that only works for cognac. And it's very interesting. And it comes also from the soil and it comes from the environment. So you couldn't make a, like a regular white wine? Out no, of it would taste horrible. Wow, this is something I think most of us, or can you imagine all of our, like, our parents who drink Hennessy? Like that's not something that we typically think about, right? Like grapes yes. that are coming from cognac would taste horrible as a regular wine, regular yes. white wine. Yes, and a lot of people don't know that cognac is made of white grapes because of the color of the cognac, right? You think that it's a red grapes. It's a white grapes. The water is completely transparent when it's coming out from the distillation. But it is the barrel that will give the color and then the taste. So that's why young cognac, usually, you know, they look lighter in color. And that's why before people would always look at the color thinking the darker it is, the older it is. Now there is some tricks in the cognac industry. They would add some like wood chips inside to make it look darker faster so that you don't have to go through all the aging process. But it's a way to know the quality of a cognac and its color by the age by the color of the drink. So, I mean, you can't really distinguish the age anymore of cognac because of the wood chip uh, trick? Yes. Because uh, that, that has no bearing on uh, age anymore, right? Yes. Now, now, there is the distinction on the name, right? You have the VS, VSOP, XO. And this is a way for you to know how old is your cognac. So what is very interesting is it gives you the youngest odor inside. So, for example, a VS stands for very special. It means the youngest that is inside the blend, the youngest eau de vie, is two years old. Okay. A VSOP, very specific, uh, special Opel, is actually four years old. So the youngest inside is four years old. But it doesn't mean that the rest could not be 100 years old, 20 years old, you know. It's just the youngest inside. And XO is 10. Got it. I never knew that. Now... When you talk about um, the youngest, so now I'm beginning to see it now. Eau de vive is the water of life. Yes. Right? Okay. The water of life is the two-time distilled distillation of the original wine. Yes. That comes out transparent. It comes out like water, yes. white, right? Yes. Clear. And then you put it into these oak barrels or whatever barrels that we're using and that over time gets it darker naturally, right? Yes. Got it. So then what actually happens now is that you could take different eau de vives and put them in barrels and mix them with other eau de vives that you get from the from the uh, from the vineyard or the what do you call the the factory that you make it? Um, the distillery. Distillery. So you mix the distillery and you blend it. And that's how you can control the aromatics and that's how you can control the flavors and the color and all of that. Yes, by the choice of the blend you're making. So, and this is what is interesting. Again, on this idea of creating a cognac from a very different perspective and not being from cognac itself, 
I'm like you, like this generation of less is more. You want the best of the best, but you don't need to have a lot of it as long as it's the best of the best. I want less sugar. I don't want to have so much gold in my, you know. And I always give this analogy of um, a piece of music. How many instruments do you need to make a symphony? How many is too much that it becomes a cacophony? So my point when I give this brief for Julie to create this best cognac, I said, I want as little other V inside as possible. But with this idea that it has to be the best of the best. Usually when a typical cognac is made, you can have a blend of 30, 50, 100, 100 different other V. Because by adding so many, you'll create that complexity. My point was, no, I think that if you have the best of the best, but very few of them, they can all speak and shine and they can leave and then you can feel and, you know, they can express themselves. And when you add so many of them, it's because you're masking the bad quality of them. So in both blends, both for the the $400 cognac and the $2,000 cognac, both of them have only eight eau de vie, okay. which is like a really hard thing to do because now you have to create all this aromatic complexity, all this beautiful flavor profile, all this energy, all these feelings, you know, with only eight eau de vie. So each of them really need to have a personality. Each of them really need to shine and have something to say. So, so when you have 20 eau de vives in a cognac, right? Or mm -hmm. 30, how does company, or even eight, I, can, I just can't imagine you have to pr produce consistent eight types of eau de vives year after year to get the right blend that you want. How do they control the quality and the tones and the feel of each eau de vives if you're doing 20 or 30 or even 50 in these blends? So no, see, that's not how it works. The way it works is that that's why you add more eau de vie to compensate for the different type of eau de vie you have, right? Because every year you put one in a, in a cask and then they will age differently. So this is why every master seller's work is so hard is to recreate that same taste. Our parti pris, like our decision was that there's only 2000 of them. We're not going to recreate the same taste because I don't want to go with this idea that we're going to try to mimic it by adding other things. We'll just do something different that tastes different. And then so almost like a limited edition. But a normal cognac, basically, they will add different eau de vie to be able to recreate that taste. So let's say you're making a cake, right? Okay, this one was more chocolatey and more on the violet notes. Let's say you're making a new one, then you add other ingredients, right, to be able to recreate that same taste. Our idea is that you won't recreate the same taste because you won't have the same with this idea that we want less is more. So we'll, take, we'll do something that tastes different, but that, that will be as beautiful. Different, beautiful. Wow, I feel so ignorant. <laughs> I know. <No. laughs> I mean, I always feel ignorant because there's so much information. Every, every Vietnamese person I talk to is like doing some wonderful things. And, you know, the more information you begin to, to hear, the more you realize like you don't know shit, right? I don't like, I have no idea what I'm even asking anymore. When I'm thinking now of cognac, I'm like, okay, there's like love voice to all of this. And I didn't, I just didn't know. Now, when it comes to, um, let's say like a Hennessy, every year, everybody's doing different things. The, 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 the earth is different. The, the, the grapes are different. Everything's changing. So the reality is like, you're not really from year to year drinking the same thing, are you? Correct. So every year, the work of that master blender is the hardest work there is 
they have to find out of their existing pool of eau de vie, recreate a blend that will taste the same. By adding, subtracting different type of eau de vie that have different flavor profile to rematch and recreate the same flavor profile. And it's a very, very hard job. Is it like that with other alcohol, like scotches or, you know, whiskeys or bourbon? Is that the same thing that's going on? I don't want to say because I don't know as much, but I know, for example, uh, in some wine and champagne, that's what they do. Yes. This idea of, for example, when you have, you know, like a champagne, like a Moet and Chandon champagne, it is the same. They have to recreate that very specific champagne taste. And actually, it's a blend of different types of champagne inside to have that signature. It's incredible because I think of like, you know, when I think about just regular bottles going on in an assembly line uh, belt, there's like machines that just squeeze flavor, artificial flavor in to give you that flavor profile and, you know, call it a day, right? But that's not what's going on. This is like real living, breathing eau de vives, like being, and I guess that's why the term water of life makes sense because it's like yes. a living, breathing thing that's being infused into each of these bottles. It's yes. not just one thing. It's like many different things that are like breathing, living, and being uh, cultivated into a, a bottle from different different uh, flavor profiles. Yes. And on the side note, uh, which is interesting to know, but let's say you invest in a, an expensive cognac, as long as it's um, kept in a place that is dark and that is not too hot, this cognac is good to go for the next 100 years. Because once the cognac is put in a bottle, it doesn't age anymore. It's not like wine. So it's like an investment. And so that's why, for example, in Asia, a lot of people are buying very old cognac because they know it's an investment. You can now sell it in 20 years from now and make money out of it because that blend doesn't exist anymore. That particular eau de vie that was inside doesn't exist. And you will still you know, taste the same. But, you know, uh, this idea of buying cognac uh, that that becomes a, an investment, is it on the same sort of like percentages and the growth ratios of wines and the way they uh, people invest in wines? Or is it more of a higher caliber type of investment in alcohol? I'm not so sure. Uh, so I don't want to say anything wrong. But what I can tell you is that there is more and more like auctions for very expensive whiskey, very expensive cognac. And you have a very specific demographic who goes for them because they know that it has value and it's not lost in a way. Yeah, because I think on one, uh, on, in one way, which is wines, if you keep them in the cooler and the cellar and properly, and they, they, they actually are changing, right? Yes. Okay. So you're buying into that over time, you're buying into the, 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 the flavor changing over time in, in Correct. a well-kept cellar. But the opposite is happening for cognac, which is it's not changing in the glass bottle over time. Yes. So what you're enjoying to drink now, in 100 years from now, in 20 years from now, will taste the same. So you don't make any bets that you might turn wrong. But you're also paying for, oh my God, 100 years ago, somebody's tasting the same thing that I'm tasting right now because this hasn't changed, right? Yes. So there's a yes. beauty to that too, of tasting something that came from 1940, 1920. Uh, you know, that's a beautiful thing that it hasn't changed. And whoever was living at the time blended all these eau de vives, and I am now tasting the the living legacy of whatever that was designed to taste like. 
Yes. And on that note, actually, it's um, funny you mentioned this is exactly what Julie said when she tried these drinks and when we created Or Imperial. So just to tell you the reason why this cognac is so expensive, why, it, why it's worth $2,000. It's a blend of only eight eau de vie. One of them is 100 years old, over 100 years old. And so when you drink it, you drink a moment of time. You drink that person who created it at a time that doesn't exist anymore. What was very beautiful in the story of this eau de vie that we got is that it was found in the 80s by accident. Because what happened is during the Second World War II, you know how the Germans were invading France and they were going after all the French valuable. You go to Bordeaux and you go and take the wine. You go to Cognac, you take our eau de vie, right? So what happened is that the, the producers of Cognac were creating fake walls in their house. They were building, um, they were storing their Cognac in the soil. They were hiding it everywhere. So this particular eau de vie was stored and buried somewhere and found only in the 80s. And that's how we got hold of it and it's in our blend. So you have a only a limited supply of yes. this particular uh, imperial gold. This will end at one point, right? Yes, there's only 888 bottles. They're all numbered, one all the way to 888, and that's it. It's out, it's out. And how do you create the next thing, which is you have to find another World War II situation, <laughs> right? I mean, right, right. Um, the way that there are some beautiful old eau de vie that you need to have access to, that we do have access to, because what happens is those small producers don't like to sell to the big houses. Either they keep it for them or they keep it for small houses that are going to create something very beautiful that is giving homage, you know to the cognac and the cognac makers and their family, like tradition and hard work. And this is what we have. And that's how we got lucky for both cognac. They knew we were creating something unique, something very beautiful with a different point of view. And they were willing to give us access to the back door where only the family has access to. And that's how we could create these beautiful cognacs. Now I have a funny question uh, that I've been thinking about the whole time we've been talking. There's you and there's Julie, right? Yes. If I was working with another person, in my mind, I would be fighting with them all the time about whose taste is more correct. Is this a situation between you and Julie? Do you both not fight, but have disagreements about how the end product should be and who and how do you process this sort of back and forth if it even happens? It never happened. I can tell you as simple as this. I have zero taste apart being from being just a regular consumer who enjoy it. I have no capability whatsoever to be able to say that this cognac is worth five star. I just enjoy it, but it's just me. I don't have the palate the experience. I don't have all what it takes to make sure that it has that level of depth and complexity and aroma that it should be at. And just to give you um, a little story on this and you will laugh, but when we created the blend, right? I remember one time I had five different options that was created by the master blender. And so I say, okay, Julie, I'm coming to see you in Ireland. and we're gonna go do some tasting. We're gonna compare to see which one you like and you don't like. So on the paper, it sounds very fun and glamorous and in reality it was hell. 
So now I am staying at Julie and I'm telling all my friends like, oh my God, I'm going to do this cognac oh. tasting of Julie. We're going to try this cognac and hopefully out of this will come our cognac. And so I felt it would be such a pleasurable moment mm-hmm. and it was a horrible experience. Now you have to imagine me waking up at early, but tasting cognac at 8 a.m. in the morning, not allowed to eat anything, having to say, just have a glass of water, a bit of tea only, because it would alter my buzz. And you have Julie already ready. Uh, she has put labels on everything, like, you know, just so that we have no idea of what is what. We're putting competitors next to it, all in private, like in transparent labels. So we don't know what is this. And now 8 a.m. in the morning, we're tasting 10 different cognacs, our cognacs version plus competitors. And she's like very serious. She gave me a piece of pen and a paper and she said, okay, let's do it. I'm like, okay, let's do it. She takes the first glass. She smells it, put it down. She writes something. And I'm like, oh, what do I do now? So I guess I take my first glass. I smell it. I'm trying to write something apart from... Vanilla, sweet, spice. Now I take the second glass and I should, and I follow her. Everything she does, I just mimic, I copy. But now after three different glasses, they all smell the same. Vanilla, sweet, spices. Like, you know, it's to that level where you need to be able to have so much complexity, smell all of them and then taste them and recognize the difference. You need to have like, a professional education and at that level this is why she's the best one of the best so many of the world this this is why she got third world best so many of the world you know because it's just crazy how much thing she could smell and taste and when i read her notes like i tell you for example for exto she was uh saying like okay it's very perfume with an explosive bouquet it has a vine and peach violet ginger cinnamon and citrus peel and i'm like yes and then now you do that for 10 different ones at 8 a.m in the morning and she's not sure now she goes back a second round so i go back a second round of smelling and tasting and spitting and smelling with, and then a third round to make sure and now by then it's like 9 a.m completely drunk have no idea what tastes like what apart from that i'm done can we have a break and she wanted to go on and say okay let's do cocktails now because we wanted to see if our cognac would match cocktails and i'm like can we have a break please that level that she has you need to be best in the world she is jury in competitions for wine for beer for spirits she enjoy tasting 200 different type of wines in a day after 200, she says a bit too much. Her sweet spot is between, she say 120 to 150, all the way to 200 is fine. Can you believe that? No, I can't. I didn't, never even knew that that was a, a thing that people had to do. I am listening to you tell the story of just 10 and then going back to do it again. And I am breaking out in sweat. It's, 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 it's so nerve wracking to have to like taste it, write your notes, and then yes. try to do that all again and be consistent about what you thought about the first time you drank that thing. Trust me, every single variation looked and tasted different yeah. and everything was all over the place. And I remember say, Julie saying to me, so Sabrina, what do you think? I'm like, hmm, what about you, Julie? What do you think? I had no idea. You know, like at one point they all tasted the same and that's why I hire her. I, I had this vision of a brand. I am... 
an entrepreneur. I am, uh, you know, I know how to run a business and I have ideas about what the brand stands for and values and, but that's it. The rest about creating a product, you have to go for the expert and she's the expert. That and look, you know, good job that is her because otherwise it would have not taste the way it tastes. And, and that's why I asked you in the beginning, where do you think your taste came from? But now I'm understanding that that question is not really applied to you as much as it is you having the taste to pick somebody like Julie. Yes, yes. And it was very fortunate that I had her because not only she is an amazing sommelier, but she's also very humble and very nice to work with, which is not the case of a lot of sommeliers that I've talked and I've met. She was willing to try to do something different. She understood the vision I had. And she was willing to try for it, you know, and to keep on going until we reached that spot, that spot of saying, okay, this is a beautiful cognac that is what you want to stand for. Because I have sent her other variation and she say, it is beautiful, but this is not XO, right? And to have someone who understands what the brand is and stand for, what it should taste like, even before it tastes, that's, that's magic. You know, I feel like uh, with such um, a limited amount of bottles and limited amount of supply, uh, I feel like it It sounds like the business is, you know, you produce a batch and you let it sit and the distribution comes in and you get to selling the bottles. But is that e as easy as it sounds? I mean, what are some of the challenges that you face with such a low production run? And, you know, I mean, they're... they're the, the value of the bottles are very high, but what are some of the challenges of, you know, just, just sort of having two different lines like that and they're all high-end bottles? So it is difficult because it's a very high-end product. Even 400 is still considered high-end. So it's a smaller market, especially in cognac. People don't drink usually that expensive cognac, and especially not in the U.S., People are used to drinking expensive whiskey, like Japanese whiskey, but not so much of cognac. So it is a very specific category. That's why in the US, I have shifted my business model to doing workshops and to doing private events. So I do a lot of um, tasting for like lawyers, corporation, art gallery, where I will teach people how to drink brown alcohol. So this is like the US business model. Now, if you go in the rest of the world, especially Singapore, people are open to drinking and are used to drinking high-end cognac. So this is easier. People come to it and then, you know, just reorder, they try it, they like it. Now it come, we used to do a lot of activation. We did partnership with um, Mission Star Chef restaurants back in Singapore, and we would do like full dinner pairing with our cognac. One of the things I haven't mentioned to you is that we created this cognac to be enjoyed with food. The traditional way of enjoying cognac is what I mentioned earlier, which is a cigar. This was designed with a sommelier who is used to doing food pairing. So we have created four different ways of enjoying this cognac with different type of food. And so you can do a full dinner with Exto Cognac. Where did the name Exto come from? So Exto is the contraction of ecstasy and Ixo, but it's also in Latin, it means I stand above. Uh, again, with this idea that it is a drink and is a powerful drink. And when you drink it, you're standing above the crowd. That's a beautiful explanation. I, I love it. It's an easy thing to pronounce too. 
So um, now, what is the future of Exto? What is your future projections? What are your plans for the future? This is actually a very good question. Um, we are at this level where we could now do something around like 70 to $100 cognac, but we've been in the process usually for her to validate something. And so far we haven't been able to, um, just because the different type of blends that we get every time doesn't have that signature that she's looking for. So we're working on it, we're not in a hurry. However, we're working with Julie on a new product, uh, working on a non-alcoholic champagne uh, that we're hoping to launch before the end of the year. And again, with this idea of challenging the way you drink. Now, as I've heard you answer and, and respond to my questions, I am thinking about when entrepreneurs start out to make a business, to start a business, they're usually looking for a, a need in their niche. They're looking for like, uh, somebody who hasn't been fulfilled in their need. Would you say that Exto began with a need or with an idea? So I guess what I'm trying to say is, did you find like a hole in the industry where you weren't being serviced? Or did you say, you know what? I think that the Cognac family that I know can do something that has not been thought of thought about and I have this idea and so you go out and you develop idea not based on necessity I felt there was a hole I felt that was the whole white space about a cognac that would be for my generation and for women um, I call it an empowerment drink when you're drinking extra you feel empowered you feel excellence you feel that you know you're having a moment of time and so it's something that is very invigorating. It's something that feels very special. And I wanted something when I reached that level in my career and pivoting completely and dropping everything, I wanted something that was to that level. Something that I could say, you know what? I quit L'Oréal because I created something that was the most beautiful drink, but for a new generation of drinker. I really felt that there was like this whole white space. Everything is like family oriented. It's the same story. It's generation after generation making a cognac, you know, not thinking about what we want. And that's when I wanted to go into this. And that's why I'm creating this non-alcoholic champagne because this whole idea is like, there's so many times where I am in a business situation. I would like to be able to cheer with people, but I need to be clear headed. I want to be able to remember the conversation. I want to be able to, you know, be on my A game. And I want to be able to drive home too, right? So there has not been any drink, I feel, that is that level, that is to my status, to my palette of doing Mission Star experience that will have that level of drink that is non-alcoholic, that I can cheer people with, that I will enjoy. That is not a seltzer. That is not like the sparkling juice that my son will drink, you know? Nothing of that caliber. This is your first podcast ever, and this is how I judge when things are good. Did I learn some new things? I learned a lot of new things today. Did okay. You keep it, yeah. Did you keep it authentic? Did you know what you were talking about? Authentically, no. Yes. The answer is yes. And did I find it interesting? I wish I had three more hours to go into the process of 
eau de vives and bottling and barrels and the actual wine uh, of the actual area of Cham um, of cognac the, the 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 what makes it cognac cognac I, I wish I had more time so that's how I know that this was a good podcast episode and I wish you uh, more um, podcast episodes to go on to and years and years of more uh, production in Exto. Thank you so much for coming on, Sabrina. Thank you so much for hosting. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. Special thanks to Brittany Tran, to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast.